0: Thank you. That was beautiful and unbelievably, uh, unbelievably appropriate. Someone, someone who shall not be named is very wise about musical choices here at Hope Unitarian Church. <laughs> Good morning. It is a joy to be with you again. Much has happened at Hope Unitarian since I was with you last summer. Truthfully, much has happened since Friday. <laughs> Uh, If you are like me, these last couple weeks have been despair, followed by elation, followed by despair, followed by elation. Um, I wish we could stay with elation, but my gut tells me (laughs) despair will will join us again. But I have to say, uh, we were recently in Minnesota for the past two weeks visiting our family and left Friday morning at at 6 a.m. And slightly after, was it 10 o'clock our time? Um, I got a text from a former student with the news of the Supreme Court's decision. And if you want to make a 12-hour drive, go like that. Spend the day on Facebook watching rainbows (laughs) pop up. Um, Also, I I quickly said to my husband and 11-year-old daughter, no potty breaks, got to get to Oklahoma's for quality by 6.30. (laughs) So their joy was slightly tempered by my... But much has happened among your congregation since I was with you last, and I congratulate you on the process that led to the official call of Kathy Edwards as your minister. The process of calling a settled minister is challenging, regardless of the circumstances, and I commend you for your perseverance in that process. And I thank you. She is also an asset to this community. When I received the email from Kathy asking if I was available to join you today and that the theme for the month of June was compassion, I was sitting in my office at my computer. As I read the email, I looked to the bulletin board immediately above my monitor where there was a postcard that has been there for the better part of 15 years which reads, It is not enough to be compassionate, you must act. It seemed like a sign. And so I said that I'd love to join the beautiful people of Hope Unitarian. And I began to write a sermon about compassion. And then the Emanuel AME Church Massacre occurred in Charleston. And that sermon took a new direction. And then, a while later, the news media interns started sprinting down the steps of the Supreme Court with opinions that seemed frankly miraculous and like something I wouldn't see in my lifetime. And the sermon zigzagged again. And then I made a mental note to myself to think twice about accepting invitations to preach during Supreme Court decision season ever again. (laughs) I tried to bolster my wavering confidence in this sermon with the knowledge that writing a topical sermon in the era of the 24-hour news cycle is not for the faint of heart. Where does all of this leave me? I'd like to think there may be a common thread, but I guess time will tell. But ultimately, I return to that quote hanging over my computer, because it got me here in the first place. The quote was written by the Dalai Lama and is part of a longer text, which I'll share with you now. The Dalai Lama writes, "'It is not enough to be compassionate. "'You must act.' There are two aspects to action. One is to overcome the distortions and afflictions of your own mind. That is, in terms of calming and eventually dispelling anger. This is action out of compassion. The other is more social, more public. When something needs to be done in the world to rectify the wrongs, if one is really concerned with benefiting others, one needs to be engaged, involved. I've been fortunate to volunteer the past four years with a program for female inmates at the David L. Moss Correctional Facility that was begun by the Reverend Sherry Curry and the Reverend Ann Lamar, and facilitated through Divis Domestic Violence Intervention Services and the Sheriff's Office. This month-long course of 16 classes seeks to educate women about domestic violence and the ways in which it intersects with their lives. I teach the monthly class on domestic violence and religion. One of the goals of this particular class is to try to assist the women as they learn the critical thinking skills necessary to determine if a religious creed or community will be a resource for them or a roadblock for them. Will it give them things that support them, or will it cause them harm? We teach that domestic violence is defined as the threat or use of violence to gain power and control in an intimate relationship. We then expand on that definition to illustrate the ways that any authoritarian entity has the capacity to be abusive if that entity's power is used in ways that attempt to control or harm others. As you might imagine, the breadth of religious experiences of incarcerated women in Oklahoma is fairly extensive, and the class is easily derailed if we get bogged down in theological debate. And so Sherry Curry, in her great wisdom, found a handout that we use monthly The handout shows that one of the most consistent commonalities in all world religions, that is to say, the Golden Rule. Every major religion has a version of the Golden Rule, a directive that espouses compassion as its guiding principle, and appropriate action as growing from that sense of compassion. The ability to identify with another person is an important some would say, might even argue, critical process for human interaction. Compassion is the response to the suffering of others that motivates a desire in us to help. The etymology of compassion from the Latin compati means literally to suffer with. More involved than simple empathy, compassion commonly gives rise to an active desire to alleviate another's suffering. On the other end of the spectrum, the absence of compassion is what allows individuals or groups to disavow the humanity or suffering of others. If you examine large-scale atrocities throughout history, for example, the Holocaust, slavery, the European colonization of the Americas, or any of the genocides enacted across the globe, one of the common elements that links them all is the ability of the group enacting the violence to define those they would victimize as not human, or not us, or other. A major component of the the antidote to these atrocities over time was the growth of compassion. The ability of the masses to identify with those being victimized, coupled with the desire to eradicate Causes of their suffering. I was reminded this of this again on Friday night. Like many in Tulsa who were ecstatic at the news of Friday's ruling from the Supreme Court that secured marriage equality for gays and lesbians in the United States, I joined that celebration at Oklahomans for Equality. It was a party, a long time coming party. At that gathering, one of the plaintiffs in one of the marriage equality lawsuits that was responsible for the ruling that allowed for same sex marriage in Oklahoma, beating last October, ahead of the country, might I add, spoke. And I hope she won't mind that I'm paraphrasing her today. As she talked about the journey to marriage equality, she mentioned that what paved the way for marriage equality was that ultimately, the hearts and minds of enough heterosexual people changed. She said that as really brave gay and lesbian individuals and couples came out of the closet, even at the risk of persecution and the fear of rejection, and began to openly identify as gay and lesbian, the argument so oft repeated by heterosexuals over the years, but I don't know any gay people, fell away as heterosexuals realized they did indeed know and love and respect people who happened to be gay, the idea, far too often planted and perpetuated by religious doctrine and communities, that gay and lesbians were somehow less than or less deserving of equal protection under the law, began to erode. As compassion increased and heterosexual people who form the majority sexual orientation in this country began to understand that the rights and privileges and protections that they enjoyed in their marriages were being denied to others, attitudes shifted. Please know that I'm not suggesting that heterosexuals were the driving force behind marriage equality. This has been a movement driven by and won by the LGBTQ community who labored greatly and with much sacrifice to bring it to fruition. What I am suggesting is that social change does not happen easily without winning the hearts and minds of a majority of the majority population. And I think it's difficult, if not impossible, to change in hearts and minds when compassion is lacking. I return to the words of Naomi Shihabnai. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between regions of kindness. If the marriage equality ruling shows us that change... Certainly not complete for the LGBTQ population, but a step in the right direction is possible. The racially motivated massacre at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, combined with all the other systemic violence against the black community we've seen this year, last year, throughout our history as a country, shows us that still more change is needed. It is not enough to be compassionate. You must act. For me in the wake of the massacre at Emanuel A.M.E. Church, my first response was emotional paralysis. Mass violence shouldn't be shocking to me. It happens quite frequently here. But add to it the litany of names of black men killed by police violence, and I start to feel numb. When I do begin to feel something, what I feel most often is guilt at the white privilege that I possess that promises that this same systemic racist violence is unlikely to befall me or my white husband or my white daughter or my white parents or my white neighbors. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, You must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow, you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows. And you see the size of the cloth. Emotional paralysis in response to recent and ongoing violence against the black community is not acceptable. Understandable, perhaps, but for me personally, no longer acceptable. It is not enough to be compassionate, I must act. I had my first anti-racist white ally training in 1995 when I was in Divinity School. It's been 20 years since I was first given some tools with which to dismantle white racism. I should be better at it by now. But skills only improve with practice and in the intervening years, my practice of anti-racism, much like my practice of the piano while a teenager, has been somewhat haphazard and random. I don't play the piano well. The urgency of this moment in history requires intentional action. Finally, over the past week, I've created my own resolutions for personal actions in the face of this ongoing issue. I share my resolutions with you not because I think you should follow my lead and do all these things yourselves, but because I do believe that if we want to address the injustices of systemic racism, that result in violence and death, we each have to find the ways in which we each can act. It is not enough to be compassionate. We must act. So, practically, my resolutions. The first, I will listen to black voices. I won't seek out white news analysis of black voices. I will seek out black voices. I will find blogs and essays and church newsletters and academic papers authored by black people, and I will read them. I will not argue with them. I will not debate them. I will sit with the pain and the outrage and the fear expressed by these voices, and I will not try to minimize it or explain it away. I will not co-opt the stories of black people but i will try to use the power i have to justify or to sorry i will try to use my power justly to amplify the stories of black people as they have written them i will listen to the painful and uncomfortable calls for accountability from white americans for the continued existence of white privilege in the united states and i will wrestle with my privilege and the unearned benefits i receive every day because my skin is white Second, I will act where it is appropriate for me to act. That is to say, I will engage with other white people about white privilege, and I will speak up when I observe racism. It was deeply comforting to me when, in preparation of this sermon, I reread the invocation spoken so beautifully this morning by Wren. We have come into this sanctuary of hope where our hearts and minds are opening to the future, We have come into this room of justice, where we set aside our fear to name freely every oppression. Those are powerful, prophetic words. And I took you at your word that you mean it, as these words gave me the courage to share these resolutions today. Because what I'm talking about today is difficult. It's difficult to say, it's difficult to hear, it's difficult to discuss. If it were easy and comfortable, we'd have done it long ago. It's uncomfortable work, we don't have neat and clean results, and it goes on and on. If my first resolution is to to allow black voices to guide my action, my second step is to engage with other white people, because honestly, we are the ones that need to dismantle white privilege. During the first of what has turned out to be many anti-racist white ally trainings, my first educator who everyone should be so fortunate to have for this difficult transformative work was Beverly Daniel Tatum. Then a professor at Mount Holyoke and the co-creator of an anti-racist training organization known as Communitas, she now serves as the president of Spelman College. If you haven't read her book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? I recommend it highly. Dr. Tatum was kind yet firm and forceful when she told the white students assembled at that training, it is not the responsibility of black people to educate you out of your racism. That is your responsibility. It is also your responsibility to educate yourselves about white privilege. This is where you can have efficacy in the struggle. We are fortunate in Tulsa to have the local YWCA, whose mission is empowering women, eliminating racism. The YWCA has amazing and timely resources available for anyone who's interested. And as part of step two in the wake of the massacre, I took their Silence is Violence pledge which reads, First, I acknowledge that racism is real. Second, I acknowledge that silence is violence. Refusing to talk about racism is the equivalent of continuing to subject people of color to physical harm. Third, I promise to engage in conversations about race, to not be afraid of that which I do not know, and to constantly seek a deeper, more meaningful understanding of my own culture my own relationships with others, and the evolution of race in our country. I plan to use the pledge as a reminder of my resolutions and as a tool to hold myself accountable to the things I've resolved to do. I love the anthem, which we sung this morning, an anthem of hope we shall overcome. I'm glad we shared it but it has become clear to me over time that we cannot simply believe ourselves into racial justice. My third and final resolution at this time, I will work to clarify the very important distinction between prejudice and racism. I have a cousin in Minnesota I haven't seen since we were teenagers. We reconnected, as all reconnections as all such reconnections occur in the digital age via Facebook. My cousin has generally been the most, shall we say, vocal commenter on any Facebook post I make about race. As is generally the case in in interactions such as this, when he raises an objection to something I've shared, he begins with, and I quote, I'm not racist, but... (laughs) What then follows is generally pretty painful to read. What my cousin is saying when he states, I'm not racist, but is more accurately, I'm not racially prejudiced. And I think this is largely true. I don't believe my cousin holds negative preconceived views of people based on their skin color. I don't believe he engages in racial slurs or other intentional acts of harm against people of color. But prejudice is not racism. Prejudice is a critical component in racism, but it is not the whole of the equation. Indeed, the most helpful, concise equation for racism is racial racial prejudice plus power equals racism. It is only when there are systems that have the power to codify and enforce racial prejudice that it becomes racism. When I said this to a group of high schoolers once and was met with blank stares, I panicked and blurted out, Adolf Hitler had anti-Semitic prejudices. When he amassed the political power to codify those prejudices into laws that systematically took the property of Jewish people, and then forcefully relocated Jewish people, and then killed mass numbers of Jewish people in a systematic genocide, it became anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitic prejudice plus power equals anti-Semitism. As terrible as that analogy may have been, understanding dawned on a few faces. I've learned since then to expand the equation, because we're all in it somewhere. Ageist prejudice plus power equals ageism. Sexist prejudice plus power equals sexism. Heterosexist prejudice plus power equals heterosexism. Racist prejudice plus power equals racism. The same dynamic is at play regardless of the prejudice, and the result is always a system that privileges one group over another and it is an extremely important distinction to make when having these very difficult conversations about race. In another Facebook post on another day, my cousin listed for me the myriad ways in which he, as a white man, had been the victim of reverse racism. Very gently, I tried to share that while, yes, as a white man, he could be the victim of prejudice based on his skin color, He was not the victim of reverse racism, because white people are not systematically oppressed by being white in this country. Finally, in a moment of either desperation or inspiration, maybe both, I sent him a link to Dr. Peggy McIntosh's piece, it's been around forever, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. I said that I wanted to have productive conversations with him on this topic but that I wasn't sure we shared key understandings of some of the terms we were using, and maybe this article could provide us with some common ground. While he didn't comment on the article, our interactions since that time have been markedly different, which leads me to believe he did read it. And it was a stark reminder to me that my compassion must also include compassion for people who feel decidedly different on this topic than I do. In my resolution to talk about racism and white privilege, I have to be so careful not to demean or humiliate. These conversations provoke discomfort. That is inevitable. But in having uncomfortable conversations, we have to seek not to harm. There is great vulnerability in seeing the world in new ways, and especially in the recognition that we may benefit from systems that were previously invisible to us. Again, to Naomi, she of Nye. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. It is I you have been looking for. The miracle of that first anti racist training I attended was that when I eventually worked through my initial guilt, I learned that I am not responsible for the creation of the racist systems we have all inherited, but I do have a responsibility to try to dismantle those systems. There was great freedom in the knowledge I gained. The discovery that something called white privilege existed was initially painful, but ultimately liberating. I was given language and a framework and tools with which to work. Those tools become especially important in light of events like that which happened in Emanuel AME. I was given a new understanding of the history of our country and a critical lens with which to examine everything around me. Paralysis in the face of systemic racism gave way to the idea that there were concrete things I could do. My use of that critical lens has waxed and waned, but it has gone with me and I'm hopeful that with attention and intention I will use it consistently moving forward. I invite you to add your own resolutions to this struggle. And may there be grace and understanding and compassion for all of us in this most difficult journey.